Well, let me welcome the live stream audience tonight, along with those who are here. And uh, it's good to see you. Uh, I think, folks, I, I, I've just got to, let's just be honest about it. The, the, the warmer weather is upon us. It's coming. And uh, we've had a wonderful spring. And into, the, into May here, we've had some good days, you know. So maybe there's a few more left. We'll see if we can squeeze some out. But uh, I, I, today, I had the privilege of going out with Kenny Chatham. And we went out in the ocean just to kind of cruise around. And we were chasing, trying to chase fish, but we were unsuccessful. They outran us. We couldn't, we couldn't catch up to them. So, but just to be out uh, outdoors like that, I hadn't done that in years, go out in the ocean. And it was just so refreshing. So uh, I've come tonight, and I'm ready to go. We might just go till 10 or 11 tonight. You just never know. Good to see you. Let's, let's start with prayer as we... Now open the Word of God. Father, I'm thankful that I'm not speaking to a group of people that uh, I don't know, people that are just in a room who come to only uh, listen to the Bible teaching, but Lord, we are a family. We're people that are connected together by Christ. We are brothers and sisters. And so there is a deep interest in our hearts to know you, but also to care for one another. And I'm asking, Lord, that tonight you would be with those who are not with us. You'd watch over them, protect them, undergird, guide, direct. Just, Lord, prove yourself strong in their midst tonight. And those who are here, Lord, may we experience the overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit as he opens our minds to learn from the Word of God. We want to know more about you, Lord. We want to know more about your ways and how you have worked with us and with man down through the ages and what your interest, your desire is for us. You, you, there's such a great love for us, so much of a love that you won't forget to discipline us when we get out of line. The Lord chastens those whom he loves, and we are so thankful that you care about us and love us that deeply. And so now, Lord, may the Bible come alive May the Holy Spirit inspire and, and spark in our hearts a white flame of fire for truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> we are at 2 Kings chapter 20, and uh, this will be a good one. We started studying Hezekiah last week, and I, I would just like to give a, a, a brief review of Hezekiah and his life, okay? So feel free to write thoughts down if they come to you on what I'm sharing. But uh, otherwise, just listen. Let me take you through a little journey of Hezekiah's life. Uh, he was a son, if you remember, of the wicked king Ahaz, and who reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah for 29 years. And he began his reign at the age of 25, Hezekiah. He was more zealous for the Lord than any of his predecessors in Judah. So he was, he was, again, white on fire for God. And uh, during his reign, the prophets Isaiah and Micah ministered in Judah. Uh, after Ahaz's wicked reign, there was much work to do, and Hezekiah did the work. He boldly cleaned up the house of God. He boldly resurrected, he, re he reformed Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, he, he broke down the pagan altars. He, 
he, he crushed the idols, the temples that they were worshiping on, on these high places, he tore down. The bronze serpent that Moses had made in the desert was also destroyed because people had turned to the bronze serpent and were worshiping it. You know, we'll, we'll take and make anything an artifact. I know that in the Catholic Church, I'll never forget one time, I forget where I was, oh, New York City, and I went into a Catholic church and they had an artifact right there. It was like an organ of one of the saints and dried up in a bottle inside this, this like a museum case. And I'm thinking, why? Why, you know? But that's, that's, you worship the artifact. You worship these things. And that's what he broke down. He said, we're not going to have that stuff. The temple in Jerusalem, whose doors had been nailed shut by Hezekiah's own father, he opened them, he reopened them, he cleaned up the temple. Uh, the Levitical priesthood was reinstated, so now the, the priesthood was back in order. Um, Passover was reinstituted so that they would celebrate Passover again, and it made it a national holiday. So under Hezekiah's reforms, revival was coming to Judah. Okay, Now, because King Hezekiah put God first in everything he did, the Bible says that God prospered him. This is a period of time in history when you are prospered by God for doing the right things, obeying God, and, and trying to uh, live out a righteous life. You and I live in a different time with God. Jesus Christ did all of that for us. He obeyed the Father. He lived righteously. He went to the cross in our behalf so that we don't have to try by works, by our own good works, we don't try to measure up to God's standard. We could never do it, right? Jesus has done that for us. So in the Old Testament, you would cry out to God, Father, I've been faithful to you. I did exactly what you asked. I was obedient. And we, we share our, our, our reason for why we think God should bless us. In the New Testament and today, Father, thank you that Jesus did everything I could never do. And I'm so thankful to be found a child of God in you through Christ, that I have his righteousness, not my own righteousness. It's not by, my, not by my good deeds that I'm in good standing with you. It is by the good work of Christ in my behalf. Amen? That doesn't excuse us from good deeds. Because now that I am appreciative of what God has done, it makes me want to rise up and return to Him love that He has so graciously and lavishly poured on me. So I want to serve Him. I want to do good things. But my good works are not connected to my standing with God. My position in God is settled at the foot of the cross. Amen? Okay, so in 701 B.C., Hezekiah and all of Judah faced a crisis, okay? The Assyrians, we talked about this last week, the, the dominant world power at that time invaded all of Judah and literally took all the major cities and the fortified cities. And the only city left that they had not conquered was Jerusalem and they were setting up a siege around the city, okay? Uh, but the Lord, through Isaiah, who was the prophet at that time, told Hezekiah, don't fear the Assyrians. 
they will not step foot in Jerusalem. That's the word of the Lord. So God had already given Hezekiah the instruction, don't fear them. They're not going to come into the city. I don't care what they do outside. They're not going to come in. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, so Hezekiah goes to the temple. He prays a beautiful prayer for help, asking God to vindicate him. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from, the, from his hands so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the one true God. What a great prayer. That ought to be your prayer in the morning when you get up. You call, you, hey, I, I heard this this week. I can't remember who, who said it, but I thought it was really good. Some, they had read a, a, a text or something that somebody put out and said, before you go to bed at night, take your slippers and slide them way up under your bed where you can't reach them. When you get up in the morning, you got to get on your knees to find your slippers and you stay there for a little while. Isn't that good? I love that. I love that. Well, that's, that's Hezekiah. He is seeking the Lord and asking the Lord for help. Unlike his own father, Ahaz, who turned away from the Lord instead of going to the Lord for help. And it put Judah in a terrible mess. So this is really a, a wonderful part of the story here. God is faithful always. Amen? He's always faithful. He keeps his promises. He kept his promise to Jerusalem. And that very night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 Assyrian troops, put them to death, that were trying to seize the city. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. The scripture says in 2 Chronicles 32:22 that the Lord took care of them on every side. So... God covered everything. He took care of everything for, the, for Jerusalem. Now, tonight, we're going to see that towards the end of Hezekiah's life, he became very sick. And Isaiah told him to set things in order and prepare to die. But Hezekiah prayed. He sought the Lord. He's beckoning God to extend. Well, he doesn't pray. He doesn't pray and say, heal me. That's interesting. He's been told by the prophet of God, you're going to die. Your, your death is imminent, and, uh, but he doesn't seek for healing. But he does cry out to God, and here's what he cries out. He basically says, Father, everything you've asked me to do, I've done. I have remained faithful to you. I've carried out your, your, your plans. I've obeyed your, your, your will. And so he's crying out to God. And that's, again, Old Testament. That's what was common. That's what they did. You go before God on the merit of your faithfulness to God. Lord, I need this, or I'm asking you for this, because I have obeyed you. I have been faithful to you. New Testament, that's not why God gives favor or blessing to us. You're blessed because of what Jesus did in your behalf. So now it's not a matter of you having to plea before God, somehow corner Him so you can... He can't get away, and now I can try to get him to give me what I'm asking for. No, no. Now you are simply found in Christ based on the good work of Jesus Christ, what he has done before the Father. So now you're coming and saying, Father, thank you for the work of Christ in my life. Thank you for the blessings that I now have, the riches of heaven that I now have in Christ Jesus. It's a whole different game today. Amen? I'm glad for that. I love that. So 
But in that day, he's seeking the Lord. And the Lord heard his prayer. And before Isaiah could even really leave the, 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 the area, uh, God spoke to Isaiah and said, go back and tell him that I'm going to extend his life 15 more years. And uh, we're going to talk about that because it, it, it appears in that story that God changed his mind. It, that's what it, if you read the story on, on face value, God changed his mind. Is that true? If that's true, then there's a lot of other scripture that that contradicts. So we're going to take a look at that. Yeah, Frank. Amen. Amen. You're ahead of me. You're good, man. You're good. You, I should let you come and finish this teaching. You could do it. I know you could because you love the Lord and you're a good Bible student. Okay. Uh, so let's look at verse 1. Let's get into, this is uh, 2 Kings chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Now, this happened at the time of the Assyrian invasion of Judah, the siege, because Jerusalem had not been delivered from the Assyrian threat yet. Verse 6, go down to verse 6, and, I'll, and, and uh, I'm not just coming up with this because I read it somewhere. It's in the Bible. And I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the, my servant David's sake. So they're under the siege still, okay? Uh, so this, the events of this chapter are also recorded, by the way, in Isaiah chapter 38. Remember now, during this period of time when Hezekiah is king of Judah, Isaiah and Micah are the two contemporary prophets of that day. So it's, it's, it's just natural that Isaiah himself, in his book, Isaiah 38, would talk about this particular king in this particular time under the Assyrian uh, siege. Okay, So that's another homework assignment, just a little more reading for you. Are you guys warm in here? Is it just me? No? Okay, you're good. Okay. You're warm. Okay. If we can just maybe set that down a little bit, that'd be great. So, now, we're not told how Hezekiah became sick. It doesn't say anything about that. It may have been through something obvious to all, or maybe it had been through something known only to God. We don't, we don't know. However, Hezekiah did become sick, so it was certainly permitted by the Lord. There is nothing absolutely nothing that ever happens that God is not fully aware of. And so God was not caught off guard by the sickness. Uh, and so Hezekiah was told to set his house in order, for you shall die and not recover. Not, not everyone is given the exact time to know when you're going to die. Now, i got to tell you, some would say, oh, I don't want to know that. Well, if it's coming like next week, I'd like to know. Okay. If it's like 20 years from now, I don't really care. But I think it's, a bless it's almost like God being gracious to Hezekiah. Okay, your time's coming. So go ahead and get your house in order. Uh, he probably, I don't know if, I, if he took it that way. It doesn't appear in the text that he did. But it says he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Now this is interesting. 
Isaiah is in his presence because Isaiah is the one that told him that he's going to die. He turns away from Isaiah. He turns towards the wall. That is a picture of him trying to go before God alone. He wants quality, private time with God. Okay? Uh, he's directing his prayer to God in privacy. And not even Isaiah is privy to what's being said. Verse 3, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So again, Old Testament covenant, he's showing God his faithfulness to God. And that means something to God. Back in the Old Testament, that meant something. Now, no man was faithful and righteous before a holy God. But God saw the intent of the heart of Hezekiah. And it had a, it had a, uh, he, he knew his heart was right. Now, interesting. Uh, Deuter Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 will actually give you the, the basis for knowing that this is how God's people approached God in that day. Okay? Let me give you one more. Write down Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2. Let me read that one for you. Listen to this. This is David, okay? Psalm 15, 1 and 2. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Verse 2, here it is. He who walks blamelessly and does, does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now, is there any man in the Old Testament that walked truly blamelessly before God? No. Because we're born of sin, of Adam, right? So, but to the degree that God could see the heart, the intent of the heart, the heart of these individuals were bent towards God, not towards self, not towards the world. God saw that intent. And oftentimes, he would bring a blessing because of the faithfulness of people. Again, New Testament, now it's not just covering the sin, it's redeeming us from sin. And the only one who can redeem is one who is innocent. In the Old Testament, nobody was innocent. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the innocent one who laid down his life, became the substitutionary atonement for our sins. So we give thanks to God for that. Uh, so in, in the New Covenant, we're blessed on the principle of faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, let me give you a passage. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You think about that. You were cursed because you broke the law of God. But Christ, the innocent one, became cursed for you. The Scripture says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Not faith in our works, faith in the work of Christ. So now, back to Hezekiah, uh, the, this principle of prayer isn't fitting for a Christian today, but in his day, it was a perfect prayer. 
It really was. We base our pleas on Christ's righteousness. He based his on his faithfulness to God. And verse 4, And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. Wow. Now that'd be pretty cool. Think about that. Imagine that, you know. The doctor said, you've got six months to live. And you go before the Lord, Father, I've tried to live faithful to you, and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and He's my Savior, and He, I'm, I am clothed in His righteousness, and I, there's more work that I want to do here. Would you extend my life? And the Lord say, okay, I'll give you another 15 years. And so on the surface, it looks as if the prayer has changed the heart of God. The mind of God has changed because of a man crying out to him. That's what it looks like. And we're going to break this down because I, I want us to have a right theology of God. Out of everything that you study in the Bible, you always, always want to apply right theology about God first. You don't want to get God wrong. You don't want to begin to give God credit for things that he says that's not true or that you try to take away from God what is true. You've got to have right theology, clarity of doctrine on God. And, and so we're going to look at that just in just a moment. So the question that I'll ask you is this. Did God change his mind? You're right. I believe it was all part of God's divine providence. The way it played out, does God have foreknowledge? I'm asking. Does God know everything? Does the scripture not say that he knows the, the beginning or the end from the beginning? Nothing is a surprise to God. God knew that this prayer would be offered up before it was ever offered. God knew how he would respond before the prayer was, 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 was offered up. God is in charge. That's, that's why we say that God is sovereign. That's what it looks like when you're sovereign. Now, let me give you some, some scripture to back up how I know that God did not change his mind. Okay? Write this down. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Malachi 3, 6. Let me read it for you. For I, I, the Lord, do not change. <laughs> Is that clear enough for you? Let me tell you what that, okay, let me break that down in the Greek or the Hebrew for you. God doesn't change. He just said it. James 1.17, New Testament. For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. Numbers 23.19, go back to the Old Testament. Numbers 23.19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. God is nothing like us. We are made in his image. We are but we're not God. We'll never be God. 
Well, don't ever compare yourself that you're God, that I can do everything God can do. You, you are not God. You're a man. You are prone, even as a believer, there's still lying on your lips. There's still evil that wants to rise up in you. Why? Because you're clothed in flesh and blood. Not until you are glorified in heaven will you be set free from that completely. Now, you are free and justified spiritually. But physically, you're still in the flesh, and you still have carnal thoughts, and you can still fall in sin. God is not like that. Even Jesus, who was fully man while he was fully God, never sinned. He's not like us either. <laughs> okay? So let's, that, that's real important that we understand. God does not change his mind. Now, based on those verses, uh, he's, God is unchangeable. He's immutable. He's also all-wise. So he cannot change his mind in the sense of realizing a mistake, backtracking, and trying something different. That, God's never done that. You've heard me say this before, but one word that's never come out of God's vocabulary, ever. Oops. So how do we explain verses that seem to say that God does change his mind? Verses like Genesis 6.6. 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Or Exodus 32.14, it proclaims, Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. He relented. These verses speak of the Lord repenting or relenting or something that seems to contradict the doctrine of God's immutability. But I want to explain it to you. There's another passage that's often used to show that God changes his mind. It's the story of Jonah. Remember that? Through his prophet, God had told Nineveh he would destroy the city in 40 days. But then, that's back in, jo in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. However, Nineveh repented. God did not destroy the city. So here's a turnaround. Okay? In response to the Assyrians' repentance, God relents. Uh, verse 10 says, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, let me give you a couple considerations involving the passages that say that God changes his mind. First, we can say statements such as, The Lord was grieved and that he had made man on the earth. That's an example of a figure of speech that is common to finite man, not infinite God. And oftentimes, the way God wrote the narrative was in a way that we would understand. So when it says that he repented, it actually in the Hebrew means he was sorrowful. He was sorrowful. He knew he would be sorrowful, but he's a person. He has a personhood. He still was sorry for it. It doesn't mean he repented. Okay? So... Uh, why would the Bible say it that? Why would, why would the Bible write it in a way that we would understand, even though God doesn't function that way? Because otherwise we wouldn't get it. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Okay, when, when, God, when God stopped the sun so that, uh, who was it, Joshua, could finish the battle, it doesn't say, you know, that I mean, when he describes it, you'd think, man, 
How, do, how the heck does that happen, that God would stop something? The, the earth from its rotation. Well, the earth doesn't rotate. The sun is rotating around the earth. When it says, when we say, it's a beautiful sunrise, okay? It's a beautiful sunset. Well, the earth is rotating. But we don't say it that way because we don't understand it that way. We don't think that way. So God says things oftentimes in Scripture. When it says that He blew breath into man, when He blew breath into Adam, does that mean that God in heaven is in a human form that has nostrils and a mouth that He can breathe and and blow out breath into man? He's saying it in a way that we can get it. I do believe it was breath, it was, it, was, it was the Holy Spirit that was blown into, but that doesn't mean that He did it the way we would think of blowing breath into. So the Bible's filled with these kinds of figures of speech that really fit more our way of understanding and thinking than it does God. Does that make sense? Okay. Verse 6, I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. Now, none of that makes sense to me. I don't know how a person with a boil uh, dies. But <laughs> we, don't know where, we, don't, we don't know anything. We don't even know what the word boil really meant in that day. So it might have meant something much, much worse. And I don't know... People say, well, wait a minute. Okay, so he, God's using medical treatments to, to extend somebody's life? Uh, yeah, he did that a lot in the Scripture. If you, if you stop going to a doctor because you're trusting God, that's foolish. Because God himself, here, right here, Isaiah said, go get some figs. Let's make a, whatever, a paste or whatever. We're going to put it on the boil, and God will extend the life. We should get treatment if we can. But yet we never put our hope and trust in medicine. Our hope and trust is in the Lord who gave the mind to the doctor to know how to create the medicine. God gets the glory for all of it. Amen? Okay. So, Hezekiah is healed. They called for some figs, some type of medical treatment, and, and it worked. And I don't understand it. You say, well, how can a fig take care of a person who's dying? Uh, excuse me. We're not talking about the natural realm here. We're talking about the supernatural. In the natural realm, God allows nature, the laws of nature that he wrote, to play out. In, in a miracle, God intervenes in the natural realm with the supernatural. So now all of a sudden, even a fig can heal somebody of whatever disease is going to kill them. <laughs> Praise God for that. Amen. Okay, verse 8. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that has, He has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? I'm going to stop the sun, and I'll either take it forward 10 steps beyond what it should be, or I'm going to move it back 10 steps. You choose. 
I'll let you decide which sign you want from me. Wow, pretty cool, huh? And Hezekiah answered, it is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen 10 steps. I don't know if that's true. I don't think it'd be easy for the sun to advance 10 degree or 10 step or whatever it is. Uh, and Hezekiah answered, it's easy for the shadow to lengthen 10 steps. Rather, let the shadow go back. That would be something cool. I'm standing on the steps. I can see the shadow on this step. Instead of it moving this way like it or this way like it should, I'm going to let it go this way. I want to see it go this way, where it just came from. Then I'll know that you have delivered me. Imagine asking God for something and God working a sign with the sundial, either moving the sun forward or back 10 degrees. And he gave him the choice. Let it go back 10 degrees. And the sun went back 10 degrees. Now that alone it will just cause a, science, a scientist to freak out. You've got to be nuts if you think that happened. First of all, the whole earth would be knocked out of its axis and it would speed up the sun or it would slow down. They would go on and on with all the, the, the fallout of something like that happening. Again, God in a miracle interrupts the natural laws that he wrote and allows the supernatural to occur. So if you try to understand it, you're just going to make a, you're going to frustrate yourself. There's no way to understand it. You have to just say, God is awesome. My God can do whatever he chooses to do. And it doesn't have to make, science, make sense to science. Amen. And, and by the way, if you say, well, I just think that's ridiculous to, to think that somebody would believe that God would turn the sun back 10 degrees. Um, you believe Genesis 1-1, didn't you? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's 10 degrees with the sun against that? So we accept the things in some places in Scripture, in other places we struggle. Don't struggle with it. It's God. God does what He wants. That's just how big your God is. Unless you serve some little dinky God who can't do anything, but that's not your God. Okay? Acts 4.24, O Lord, Thou art God, Thou hast created the heaven and the earth and all that is in them. That's the way the apostles began their prayer. They recognized that God is supreme. God is sovereign. God is uh, immutable. God can do whatever He chooses in this world, and He does. So there's no need to try to explain how crazy it is to think that God reversed the earth's rotation or made the sun recede. What's crazier is that no other civilization on the earth at that time recorded any change in, on the earth, any change in the shadow of the sun. It's a miracle. It happened in that land at that time for that reason. That's how personal God is too to Israel. Really cool. Second uh, Chronic. By the way, write this down. Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two, verse twenty-four through twenty-six. Let me say it again. Second Chronicles, thirty-two, twenty-four through twenty-six. It tells us that Hezekiah did not respond rightly to this gift of healing that God provided. The Chronicles. Okay, again, I've said this a couple times. The kings are a synopsis of the life of Judah and Israel under the kingship of various kings. Chronicles, the Chronicles, are a more specific, very detailed account 
of the same stories. So when you're in the Kings and you read something and you go, wow, it just isn't much information, run over to the Chronicles and line up the same story and you'll get more information. And that's what the case is here. We don't see anything in the Kings about uh, Hezekiah responding in a wrong way. But in the Chronicles, it actually lets us know that he did not respond rightly to the gift of healing. In those days, listen to what it says, in those days Hezekiah was sick and near death and he prayed to the Lord and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him for his heart was lifted up. He was becoming haughty, becoming prideful. He had been faithful to God his whole life and now all of a sudden because God's healed him, now pride comes in. Therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and over Jerusalem. Now let's put the whole picture together. So God knew that Hezekiah would be king. God knew that he would bring reform to Israel or to Judah. Uh, and, is, and at that time it was called Israel because the, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone. So now they start reverting back to the, the southern kingdom of Judah as Israel as well. So God's done all these things. And God also knew that Hezekiah would be, would be dying, that he would cry out, God would extend 15 years, and God knew that he would be, be, uh, become prideful in it and not be as faithful in the last 15 years of his life as he was throughout his whole, king, uh, his whole kingship. God knew everything, and it's all working according to God's plan. You say, well, okay, well, what's the plan of God? God's already promised that Judah is going to be hauled off, that they're going to come under captivity, but it won't happen by the... Uh, Assyrians. It's going to happen by the Babylonians. And Isaiah is about to say that. Verse 12, and at that time Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. So, you know, this is one king to another. I heard you were on your deathbed, you were going to die, and I've heard you've recovered, that your God helped you to recover. So he sends an envoy with a message uh, uh, celebrating the recovery. Um, here's what I want to say about Hezekiah at this point. Just because God extends for us more time for something doesn't mean we will automatically make wise choices and that we'll use that time wisely for God. He did not. When the king of Babylon sent this letter to Hezekiah, it was a gesture of kindness, but it was much more than that. It was also geopolitical because the Babylonians were a rising power, but they were not as great as the Assyrian, Assyrians. The Assyrians were the dominant power on the earth. They knew that the Assyrians had come against uh, Judah, so now they're reaching out to Judah because God has taken away the Assyrians. Let's reach out to Judah, who was attacked by our enemy, and let's see if they'll align with us against the Assyrians. So there's an ulterior motive in the heart of the Babylonians for sending an envoy to deliver a message from the king. Okay? In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian, he said the purpose of the visit was to secure Hezekiah as an ally against an anti-Assyrian coalition. So there it is. Now go back to verse 13. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. 
Look at this. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. What a terrible move. He was so flattered that the king of a rising power would come to his aid and would send a letter of commendation on his recovery and, and would, would even possibly want to start aligning together. He was so taken by that that his pride blinded him. And now he's making choices that are unwise. Okay, God did not tell him to reveal the treasures of God's people. God did not lead him to show him everything in the land. He really messed up here. So get the picture. He was a great king. He brought reform. He was going to die. He cried out to God. God extended his life 15 years, and he wasted it. The Bible is filled with stories of great men and women who finished poorly. They did not finish strong. They were gung-ho for God when they started out. They served the Lord. They did mighty things for God. They were mighty men and women of valor, standing for God, trusting God, leading God's people, and yet they finished poorly. Hezekiah is one of them. What he really showed them was his own proud foolishness. That's what they saw. Yes, Frank. Yes. Uh, I tried so many times to marry him, but I used to look over and see this guy that I respected and stop for 10 years. Mm. So that kind of happens with that. It, it's, it's so easy to slip back into a settled life. The older we get, we just become more settled. We become more established. We become more... Um, set in our ways, where when we're young, we have a, hot, a, a fire for God in us. And it happened a lot in the Scripture. And I'm talking some of the great patriarchs that did not finish strong. Okay? Moses. God did not allow Moses to go into the Promised Land because of what he did at the end of his life. God was trying to point the people to Jesus, a, a type of Christ. Moses struck the rock. Instead of speaking to the rock, Jesus speaks life. Moses struck it out of anger because of the people. He didn't get to go in. I mean, I'm just telling you, the Bible's replete with stories. So Hezekiah is obviously wanting to please this envoy. He's so thrilled that they're there. You know, I can't believe that they came all this way just to let me know how much, how glad they are that I'm alive and well and moving forward. And let me just show them everything. Man, these guys are neat, but it'd be kind of cool if we could join up with them against the Assyrians and blah, 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 blah. And he revealed what they saw in him was not all the treasures. They saw him. 
They saw a foolish man. They saw a prideful man. They saw somebody who was ripe for the picking. And they saw a nation that had the supplies and the treasures that they wanted. So success can be a wicked cocktail. You, you can have success in the Lord. And then your pride takes over. And these beautiful God successes become self-successes. And it becomes ugly in the eyes of the Lord. And, and it deceives us and it deceives those that are under our leadership. Uh, there were a lot of good things, a lot of, a lot of successes in Hezekiah. Number one, he was a godly man. Number two, he was victorious. He was healed. He experienced a miracle from God. He had a promised long life from God that nobody gets. Nobody, God doesn't tell you, you got 15, I'm going to give you. You're supposed to die, but I'm going to give you 15 more years. He got that from God. He had connection to a great prophet, Isaiah. I mean, he knew Isaiah. Okay? He had seen an incredible, remarkable sign. The sun turning back 10 degrees. He had uh, wealth. He had fame. He was praised and honored by distant kings. He was honored by God. Those are all God's successes. God did all that. But He took it, and He used it for self. He sinned greatly after the gift of 15 more years. There's five ways. Write these down. Five ways that Hezekiah sinned. There's more. These are just five good ones. <laughs> Number one, pride. He was proud of the honors that the Babylonians gave him. Don't ever, don't ever think too highly of yourself. Don't, don't believe the press about you. People will love you today and hate you tomorrow. You're never as good as they say you are, and you'll never be as bad as they say you are. Number two, ingratitude. Because he took the honor that God should have gotten. The glory went to, should have gone to God. He took the honor to, for himself. Yes, questioning. Thirdly, abusing the gifts given to him. It's where he took, he took the gifts and favors to his own honor and gratification of his own lust. And let me explain that. Write this down. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 25 and 26. 2 Chronicles 32, 25 and 26. It actually says that he took the gifts and favors to his own honor and gratification of his lust. Thirdly, or fourthly, carnal obedience. Carnal, I'm sorry, carnal confidence. He trusted in the coalition that he had made with the Babylonians instead of trusting in the Lord. All of his life he trusted the Lord. And now all of a sudden, towards the end, he's softened up, he's set in his ways, he's proud of himself, he's proud of the fact that others are coming from long distance to, to greet me, and he actually turned to them and trusted them. Number five, he missed the opportunity. He had a great opportunity to testify to the Babylonian envoy about the greatness of God and the Lord's blessing on Judah. 
Instead, he brought all of the attention back to himself. Look what we have. Look what I have. Look what... He, he, he missed the opportunity to make the Lord's name great. He made his name great, not the Lord's. So verse 14 says, Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? <laughs> Isaiah's really concerned here. What did these men say? Um, and look at the response now. And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they have come from a far country, from Babylon. What, but he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouse that I did not show them. He's proud of that. He's saying, they came from afar. These guys were impressed by us, by me. So I showed them everything. I just really tooted the horn loud. Toot, toot. <laughs> Isaiah is not impressed at all. Because Isaiah knows none of that was yours. It's all the Lord's. You just revealed God's plans to them. So, so now the stark reality sets in. Verse 16, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Boy, when the prophet says that to you, it's either one of two things. It's an oracle of woe or an oracle of blessing. In this case, it's an oracle of woe. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Wow. So, by the way, it'll take another hundred years before Babylon comes in and holds uh, Judah captive, takes over and levels everything. Uh, another hundred years. But they did come, just as Isaiah prophesied here. This prophecy is so remarkably accurate that many skeptics will actually say that had to be a different Isaiah who wrote that a hundred years ago or a hundred years earlier. Uh, they just made the story look like it was the same story. It's not the same story. That's not true. It's a true prophecy and it really happened. Verse 18, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom, your, who, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Wow. Um, somebody who has been uh, changed so that they cannot uh, have sex, and they serve the king only. They serve the king. And so he serves in the palace of the king. Now, who were those people? Well, we know Daniel was one. You say, Daniel was a eunuch? Well, we don't know that he wasn't. But we also know the word eunuch actually also means a servant in the court of the king. So it could have been that the eunuch word was expanding beyond just a eunuch. Okay? But sure enough, some of his own family members, the household of the court of God in Judah, were going to serve the king of Babylon. Who would that be? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Now, one fulfillment of this was the taking of Daniel and his companions into captivity. Daniel was one of the king's descendants, taken into the palace of the king. Clark, one of the commentaries, he said, perhaps this means no more than they should become household servants to the king of Babylon. Verse 19, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. What? God just told you 
that in a hundred years, or that, that in the future, Babylon is going to come and take over Judah. And some of your own court are going to, are going to be, and your children are going to be serving the king of, of Babylon. And he's like, sounds good to me. You know why he was happy? Because he heard that it's not going to happen in my lifetime. I'm going to get to finish out my lifetime and I have to face any of that. We're talking about a guy who all through his life was others-focused, trying to set the course right in Judah. Now he's self-focused. He's throwing Judah on the scrap heap. So sad. Verse 20, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the, uh, the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. By the way, Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, was wicked to the core. Hezekiah was godly, righteous for most of his, his reign. Manasseh was the absolute worst king of Judah, his son. You go from a bad father to a good son to a terrible son. Okay? This was an amazing engineering feat, by the way, this aqueduct that, that, he, that he speaks of. It's right here recorded in the Scripture, that he, how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. Um, he, he built this aqueduct to ensure fresh water inside the city walls, even during sieges. So it was Hezekiah who developed that. This aqueduct was 650 uh, yards long. Now think about a 100-yard dash. Remember, when you were in school, did you have 50-yard dashes? 600 yards. 650 to be exact. Okay, now, now let me just tell you the feat here, the engineering feat, okay? They actually started building the aqueduct. They had to, they had to drill hole through solid rock, 600 feet. They started at both ends and ended up perfectly in the middle. Now you think about that. They started at both ends and end up perfectly in the middle. By the way, there is no people on the earth per capita that have brought more innovation, more discovery, more refinement than the Jewish people. Nobody. Nobody comes close. If you look at the nation of, of Islam, all the Arabs, the Muslims, if you look and you took these four walls and you said, let's just write out all their great achievements. Let's write out their Nobel Peace Prizes. Let's write out all the things that they've accomplished for the sake of mankind on the earth. Uh, it would go from here to here. If you said, now what about the Jews? The least people of the earth, that's why God chose them. They were the least. But because they were God's people, did He not give them favor? You would not have the Bible if it were not for the Jews. The scribes 
the extent that they went to to, tra- to, tr- to literally translate and write out the Holy Scriptures. You know what it's like if I whisper in Ani's ear something, and then Ani whispers to the next person, and we go all the way around. By the time we get over here, it's going to be com- something completely different than what I said to Ani. Isn't, it, isn't that true? It's not going to be the same. 14,400 copies or pieces of Old Testament manuscript found on the earth. Less than 1%, a 1% error in all of the manuscripts found. 1%. And of the 1%, it was not substantive, it was spelling error, grammar. You know why? You know why it was so accurate? Because the scribe would write the Bible one letter at a time. Not one word, one letter. Take what they see here, write that letter here. Go back, the next letter. Go back, the whole Bible. That's how they transcribed. That's how they wrote out the Bible. When they came to the name of God, Yahweh, which we don't really know his name, the vowels have been removed, but uh, they would lay the, 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 the pen down and they would go cleanse themselves and they would pick up a new pen and write God's name. What other people on the earth would take that extent? Only people who have a relationship to God, a special Chosen, holy, dearly loved people. New Testament, 24,000 copies or pieces of manuscript. Less than 1% error in the spelling. Did God know what He was doing? You better believe it. So here they are with these two massive tunnels that they start 650 feet from each other and they end up perfectly in the middle. How do they do that? I don't know, but I'm blown away by that. That's the, God, that's, the, that's the goodness of God. So, by the way, that tunnel was discovered in 1880. They didn't find it until 1880. Uh, so no doubt Hezekiah started out as a godly king, and overall his reign was one of an outstanding godliness. But he began, after his, after his recovery from the sickness, he began to turn inward and took, took credit for God's things, and pride overtook his heart. What's the takeaway? Time and age doesn't necessarily make us better. If we stop leaning into God, we will not be the better for the time we have left. Just because you're older doesn't mean you're going to walk in wisdom. You can make foolish decisions when you're old. People do it all the time. You have to stay true to God. You have to stay in His Word. You have to continue to seek Him daily. You have to learn, even as an older person, which is harder when you're older because you're established. You've been there. I've done that. Whatever. It's hard to stay fresh. It's hard to stay on your knees, so to speak, before God the older you get. But that's what's required to finish strong. 
those in the Bible who did finish strong. That's how they did it. They never took advantage of the fact that they knew God for so many years. They still saw the next day as a new day with the Lord. And I'm going to seek Him like I did when I was a young man or a young woman. And that's, that's what we have to do. Amen? Well, we're going to stop here. Uh, any questions about this chapter at all before we close our time in prayer? Anything? Yeah, so it would be a water supply outside the city, fresh water, and they found a way to transfer that water under the wall, through the rock, into the city, so that if they were being, uh, if they were being held captive by the enemy, the water could still get in the city. They couldn't, they couldn't cut them off. They still had water. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Anybody else? Let's, let's close our time in prayer. Lord, tonight we do want to give you thanks. Again, this is not just a time to come and study the Bible. It's also a time to be the church, to be the body of Christ, to stand together, to love one another, to care for one another, to make friendships. And I pray, Lord, that before people leave tonight, that you would allow us to experience the favor of your church of just being a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we just give you thanks for your word because it just bolsters our desire to trust you and follow you and obey you, but it also bolsters us as a family that we are in this together. We're not alone. I'm not having to do battle against uh, this world alone. I, my brothers and sisters are fighting the same battle. We, we can stand together, shoulder to shoulder, and I pray that you would just strengthen us as we go tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, there's some snacks over here, and there's coffee in the back. There's water, whatever. But, you know, if you want to get something to eat before you leave, or if you want to just uh, fellowship for a few minutes, feel free to do that. You're welcome to stay as long as you need to. God bless you. Did you talk about Song of the Reef?